John 16, verse 4. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You are not an apostle. I hope that doesn't come as a surprise. (laughs) You are a disciple of Christ, someone who follows not just his way, but his person. But you are not one of the disciples, those Jesus is speaking to here. They are apostles, and their office is distinct and unique in redemption history. I begin with that because a point I made about last week's text is equally relevant to this one. Jesus' words here have implications and application for all of us. But the primary application, the center of this passage's meaning, is for the lives and ministries of the apostles. And that, though not about us, is for us and for our understanding of Christianity and the Christian church. It's true that the Spirit of Christ dwells among and within us. It's true that the Spirit works in us and among the world, doing the things Jesus talks about in this passage. But if we jump from these verses to the application in our own day, we miss the Lord's important, encouraging, and confidence-inspiring intent. We pick up where we left off last week in verse 4. But I've said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. And then, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks, where are you going? Sorrow has filled your heart. What Jesus gives to his people is tailored to them and their circumstances. In the past, When Jesus was to remain with them, the disciples didn't need this forward-looking warning about the world and its hate. But now, there's a major change. He is going back to the Father. That this will change the disciples' circumstances is obvious to them. But their focus is too narrow. Their concern is is the sorrow that Jesus' departure creates in their own hearts. They're thinking only about how they will feel to be without him. Feelings matter, but feelings can also distract. God is doing something important in their lives, 
in this case, important in all of redemption history. But they can't see what it is because they're focused on their feelings. In these sermons, Jesus is equipping them to understand and to respond faithfully to what will happen next. They ignore this preparation at their own peril. Their lives don't get easier from here. Right now, the world's hatred is fixed on Christ. The fiery arrows are directed against him. But when the protection of his presence is gone, the disciples will become the targets. And they need to be ready. When he started teaching them these things, he encouraged them to trust in God rather than to choose troubled hearts. They've chosen troubled hearts. He explained the purpose of his departure in 14, verse 2, to prepare a place for them. He explained the outcome of his departure in 14, verse 12, that they would be able to perform even greater works. He explained the presence of the Spirit in 14, verses 15 and 20, drawing them into the union of divine love. They didn't have to choose troubled hearts. They did. He's given them a lot to fall back on when he's gone. And they're going to need a lot. But comforting words, even the comfort of God, can bounce off of troubled hearts if that's all we see. Before they believed he was departing or that his departure was significant, a real departure, they had lots of questions for Jesus. Where are you going? Why can't I follow? How will I know the way? But now that they understand this is actually happening, now that they should be able to ask more relevant and more important questions, they've gone silent. The questions have stopped. If they saw the upcoming events from Jesus' perspective, even with the cross in view, they would be filled with wonder, awe, and even rejoicing. Think about it. He's returning to the Father, the eternal glory of the Godhead from whence he came. And he will return because he accomplished salvation for his people. This calls for wonder and awe and rejoicing. Troubled hearts can't manage any of that. All the disciples can think about is the personal pain they will experience when their master departs. They don't ask the important questions. What does this mean for Jesus? And what does this mean for our future apart from him? And that's Jesus' lament in these first few verses. They don't ask the right questions because they're only looking at their own troubled hearts. Having expressed this concern, he moves on to nonetheless tell them what they needed to hear. Verse 7. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Verse 7 may be the most stunning verse in the whole Bible. The incarnation is the greatest miracle of human history. Oh, what it would have been like to walk with Christ. But here Jesus tells the disciples that it is better, even for them, if he goes. 
What explains this is the unique role of the apostles in God's plan to save his people. Theirs will be a ministry of confirming, recording, and expanding. They they confirm and record the ministry of Christ through their teaching and preaching and the production of divinely inspired scriptures. For this reason, the Holy Spirit was sent to them in a unique way to lead them into all the truth. The Spirit would bring to their remembrance in a unique way, with perfect accuracy, the things that Jesus said and taught and did among them. The Spirit leads us to the truth, yes, but how this passage applies to our lives is not primarily about that leading. It's about our confidence in Scripture. Because Jesus sent the Spirit to these apostles And because that spirit led them into all the truth, we have the written, infallible New Testament available to us. We don't have to wonder about the lost gospels. We don't have to entertain claims by later self-appointed apostles that they too have direct revelation from God. The foundation of of our confidence in the books of the New Testament is laid here by Jesus' promise. No spirit, no scripture. Jesus says he must go so that the helper will come. And there's both a practical and a spiritual dimension to that statement. The practical is that without the Holy Spirit, the New Testament could not be written, And the expansive ministry of the apostles would not take place. Physical proximity being gathered around Jesus throws a real wrench into taking the good news to the ends of the earth. But it's the spiritual dimension of Jesus' claim that is primary. If the ministry of the apostles is to take the good news of Jesus Christ into all the world, Jesus must first accomplish The good. Until Jesus dies, is raised from the dead, and returns to the Father in glory, the gospel comes up a little bit short in good news. One author writes, The Holy Spirit is the one whose special task is to apply the saving merits of Christ to the hearts and lives of believers. But the Spirit cannot apply these merits when there are no merits to apply. Jesus had to go because without the cross, without the grave, without the resurrection, without being seated at the right hand, there's no good in our good news. These are the kinds of questions the apostles should have been thinking about and asking. What all of this means for Jesus and for them. Disappointment in Jesus' departure should reasonably last only as long as it takes them to realize why he's going and what it means. And then understanding what is about to take place, how God will use them and equip them to be used by the Spirit, their feelings should change quickly from troubled hearts to wonder, awe, and rejoicing. God is giving them an incredible ministry the task of publicizing and promoting the good news of Jesus. 
And while he must leave for this to happen, he does not leave them without divine assistance. The Holy Spirit is at work in various ways and places throughout the Old Testament. He's not a newcomer to the Bible at this moment. But it is at this moment that Jesus promises that the Spirit will come with newly significant purpose and impact for his church in the world. He gives three specifics, primarily related to the ministry of the apostles, and then by extension manifested in the church today. He says Jesus' Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And there's some difficulty in understanding what that means, but it's not because there's confusion in the Greek. It's because the English is so ambiguous. When we translate the word convict, it's pretty vague in English, but it has a very specific meaning in the Greek. It's to publicly expose guilt and call to repentance. And remember also that John uses the word the world as shorthand for people in rebellion against God. So each of these convictions are about showing rebels their personal guilt before God and through that exposure, calling them to repentance. Each of these three phrases also has a because, which is causal. The spirit will convict them concerning something specific because of something specific. Look at the first. He will convict concerning sin because they do not believe in me. The work of the Spirit, through the ministry of the apostles, will continue the divisive work of Christ's ministry, separating belief from unbelief. That was the heart of Jesus' ministry. Expose and separate belief from unbelief. Those who love God will love Christ, God's perfect self-revelation. He said this many times, and they will follow him. And those who reject Christ, Reject the one who sent him. He said this many times. The ministry of the Spirit exposes this choice and the personal rebellion of all who reject Christ. The flip side of this is that everyone who is ever saved is only saved because the Spirit does this convicting work in them. Others, though their rebellion be exposed, double down on their rebellion. Another pastor writes, the Holy Spirit will lay bare the world's sin. And in the case of some, awaken a consciousness of guilt, which leads to true repentance. That's salvation. That's conversion. Being exposed, being made aware of our guilt. And being drawn back to God, not in pride and self-righteousness, but in repentance. As we heard in Sunday school this morning, the prophets have been telling God's people this for thousands of years. The ministry of the apostles was to expand this message among the people. Think about what will be said later in the Gospels and in Acts, that the apostles are to go into a place and to offer them Christ, and if they accept him, minister there, and if they reject him, wipe the dust off your sandals and move on. Theirs was a ministry of urgency. And they could quickly trust the response of their hearers because Jesus told them that the Spirit would work. When the gospel goes forth, 
And when this conviction and awareness are brought about by the Spirit, we don't have to trust our efforts any more than the apostles did. We don't have to doubt the success of our efforts based on our performance any more than the apostles did because the Spirit will do the work. Speak the truth of Christ and the Spirit will work. Now the Spirit will also convict the world concerning righteousness. Because, Jesus says, I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Jesus was righteousness personified. But the world crucified him as an evildoer. The world judged Christ by its own standards. That's how the world judges itself. It's why, by the world's standards, it thinks it is righteous and the rest of us are evil. The world in which we live is no different. Righteousness is not defined by the plumb line of God's holiness, but by subjective and ever-changing human opinions. No matter what your view is on the topic du jour, the popular topics of the day, race-based policies or masks or vaccines, Christian must know that these things do not define righteousness. Yet what does the world do? And even many, when the world creeps into the church, we judge others by these pet shibboleths rather than God's righteousness. Kids, there will be great temptation in life to judge people on the basis of less important things. When I was young, Nike shoes and Umbro shorts were all that mattered. Any kid who didn't have them was a target for ridicule. And so also was the boy with acne or the girl with frizzy hair or the kid who wore his socks too high. He looked dumb. Now you all are mature enough to know that those kinds of judgments are not just silly, but they're wrong. But adults, even we in this room, often make the same kinds of judgments and even more harshly. Because as kids, we were judging the other person only to be lame. But as adults, we look at those who do not do what we do, who decide differently than we decide, and we judge them not as uncool, but as evil, as wrong. The worst example of this in all of history was Jesus, the sinless lamb, perfectly righteous in all of his thoughts, words, and deeds, was convicted and crucified among sinners as a sinner. And worse, those who judged him judged their own actions as righteous and in defense of God and his righteousness. And what Jesus says here is that the Spirit of God, by the resurrection of Christ, and by the subsequent ministry on its account, will convict the world concerning righteousness. This is because Jesus says, I go to the Father. You see, the cross was the world's proclamation that Jesus is a sinner. But that's not the final word. The final word was the Father welcoming Jesus, welcoming him in glory, seating him at the seat of power. That's the final word on what righteousness really is. What the world judged as evil, God himself 
puts his stamp of approval and says, this is holiness. And those who believe in Christ as the standard of righteousness are vindicated by God himself. Those who judge by their own standards have their sinful righteousness exposed by the work of the Spirit. And the apostles' ministry and their claim of Christ was vindicated as the Spirit pronounced the seated, enthroned, glorious Christ who was raised from the dead. The Spirit convicts also concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Satan, the ruler of this world, is powerful. He is the source of the opposition that the apostles' ministry will face. The church will be built on the foundation of the apostolic ministry, and Satan is the the source of all the church's opposition as well. And such a powerful foe could pose a significant problem for the apostolic ministry, except for one thing. The devil, not the apostles, not the church of Christ, the devil is condemned by the judgment of God himself. The Spirit will defend the honor of Jesus in this world, the honor of his apostles, the honor of the apostolic ministry and the church of Christ. The Spirit will defend that honor against the wickedness of Satan and his minions. The ministry of the apostles was successful, even in and through their deaths, because the Spirit of God was at work protecting, defending, and encouraging them against the evil one's attacks. How else can you explain what they did? It makes no human sense. It is finished. Includes the pronouncement of Satan's judgment. And the apostles, and we today, need not fear the evil one because the Spirit proclaims God's judgment against him to our hearts. They went forth boldly, confidently, because the Spirit declared the judgment against Satan to their hearts. And they knew that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church they were given to build. These are the answers to the questions the disciples should have been asking. What should we be asking God? As we deal with fears and anxieties, harsh circumstances, difficult decisions, God likewise has answers for us in his word. But are we asking the questions? Or are we, like the disciples, looking down so intently at our own feelings and circumstances that we're unable to lift our voices even in prayer and to behold with faith the work that God is doing? Their emotional state means Jesus simply cannot tell them all they need to know right now. But notice that Jesus doesn't approach his people with a use it or lose it mentality. Parents, it's a good rebuke of us as we say to our kids, I won't tell you again. Our weakness doesn't frustrate Jesus' love for us. And that's why he says to the disciples, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all the truth. 
All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The apostles, weak as they are, can have absolute confidence in the Spirit's leading. Because Jesus makes clear that the Spirit, the Son, and the Father are in complete unity and alignment of purpose. They glorify one another in all that they do. I love how one pastor wrote, There exists between the persons of the Trinity an eternal, voluntarily assumed relationship of love and friendship, each working to the glory and honor of all the others. As we follow the apostolic word and ministry concerning Christ, we should stand in the same confidence. We can trust that what was written and preserved in the scriptures is of God because the spirit led them into all truth. We can trust the apostles' examples of Christian life and devotion. We can trust the methods and tools of Christian ministry and worship that they handed down to us because the Spirit of God declared these things to them and led them into all truth. We don't have to wonder, what are we supposed to do? Will this stuff work? It doesn't seem like it would. We don't have to wonder. This is a divinely appointed apostolic work. Thanks be to God, it's a work that's finished and a work in which we can be confident. Stephen and I were talking yesterday about MapQuest. Long before GPS, (laughs) we planned our trips with maps. You'd open the giant book, you'd rotate it so it was facing the direction you were going to go, and then you'd squint to make out the tiny road names and numbers. That was awful. And then in between maps and ubiquitous GPS was MapQuest. You'd type in two addresses, and it would give you the list of steps you needed to take to get from here to there. And we didn't have phones with big screens back then, so you would print it out or write it down, each of the steps. It was quite a hassle. And if you made a wrong turn somewhere along the way, you're out of luck. That piece of paper in front of you cannot reroute because you made a wrong turn. And then GPS came, and it changed everything. GPS doesn't simply show you the way. It guides you along the way. And this is how it is with the Spirit of God. Yes, he would teach the disciples. He would bring Jesus' words to their remembrance. But what he promises is to guide them. Jesus could guide them when he was with them, but he needed to go. And when he went, he sent the Spirit. And now, no matter where they go, no matter what city or country they're in, no matter what persecutions or trials come upon them, God would guide them through his Spirit. What a promise that whatever the world were to throw at them, whatever Satan himself would intend to deceive them, the Spirit would always be there to guide them. This church exists because the church of Jesus Christ was built through this Spirit-guided apostolic ministry. There's some confidence. Whatever concerns we have, about the church of Jesus Christ or about this church 
Whatever fears or anxieties about how they could survive in such a hostile and ever-changing world, our hearts need not be troubled. The ministry of Jesus Christ is as secure now as it was even when he was on earth at its helm. And I know this because he says so himself. It is to your advantage that I go. What the apostles needed was to remember his words. And do you know that by his spirit, they did. These fumbling, bumbling disciples we've been reading about through the gospel of John, they did not turn away when the fiery arrows came. These often confused men became by the spirit, the stalwarts of the church. They publicized the good news of Jesus Christ and they laid the sure foundation upon which we can confidently live and worship. And while the Spirit does not today lead us into new revelation, gave it to them, he does not lead us into new foundational ministries, so-called reimaginings of God or of the church, it's not because the Spirit isn't at work. It's because he already did that work through the apostles and we live and worship in the fruit of their faithful labors. He guides us today in the understanding and in the love of those scriptures. He guides us in the faithful practice of Christ-likeness and Christian worship. He guides our consciences, making them trustworthy reflections of the word of Christ. The spirit is busy in our lives and we're grateful for it. Let us also be grateful for the work the Spirit finished through these apostles. That the scriptures were published and preserved. That these apostles persevered in faithful ministry despite harsh opposition even unto death. And by the work of the same Spirit, the church and this church grows and takes ground from the ruler of this world. By the work of the same spirit, we too will persevere. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God.